everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Throughout human history, pandemics of infectious diseases such as cholera, plague, and influenza that have been triggered by bacteria and viruses have played a major role in shaping human civilizations. As the world is going through a coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic in a very short amount of time, its rapid spread and lethality is becoming a complex challenge for the entire global community. While the COVID-19 pandemic is still in its early stages, it seems that nations are struggling to prevent its rapid spread within their borders. Now, since the situation is chaotic at all levels and not much data is available for analysis, it is obviously impossible to predict how this will unfold and what will be its future impact. To understand COVID-19 pandemic, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dr. Oshan Kup to Risk Roundup. Dr. Kup is a professor at U.S. Army. His research publication and supervision of research interests include food and agricultural security and defense support to civil authorities, military operations. He's based in the United States. Welcome, Professor Kup. We're so very honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Wonderful, Professor. So we have hit a major pause and perhaps a reset button as a species. What do we know about COVID-19 that we need to understand as a species? Uh, the first thing, if we talk about details, is that in 2002-2003, there was a SARS outbreak in China. And this virus, which they're calling now the SARS-CoV version 2, has about 80% of the same RNA in it. Um, that's good for a number of reasons, hopefully for a vaccine, but it's also good so that we can see how it reacts to other people. Um, the second thing we, we know is you can be asymptomatic. In other words, you don't have a fever, you don't have a cough, but you have the virus in you and you can spread that virus without being symptomatic. Um, the one other thing that we know is this is a novel virus. It is in the family of coronaviruses, which are all from, uh, which include the cold, the common cold. So we, we have a lot of issues trying to figure out how not to treat the virus, but how to prevent it from spreading and also how to vaccinate people to get them uh, build up an immunity. Unlike the flu, all the different varieties of the flu that we have that circle the globe, we've come up with vaccines and every year you take a, a cocktail vaccine and that pretty much takes care of your immunity for that flu virus. The other thing about flu um, is if you live through a pandemic like this one, that is flu-based, the last one was in 2009, you build up a herd uh, immunity to that virus. Therefore, it being a new and novel virus makes it that much more complicated and more deadly than a normal flu. We've had uh, four pandemics in the 20th and 21st century. The first one that was the largest was in 1918 and 1919. Spanish flu during World War I. And what we know is during that pandemic, 
travel, which we, that's, that's what spread this virus and movement is what caused it to spread around the world so quickly. Um, back then you didn't have plane travel like you do now where uh, just one person from a plane can go to, for example, the nursing home in Washington state and have those people contaminated from the virus, just one person. Um, that didn't happen back then. It was more or less uh, spread through soldiers and the soldiers that were sent from the U.S. to France and Germany, and that's how it spread around the world. Um, some other things we do know about the virus is we know that medical logistics because just like a pandemic with the flu, we need masks, we need ventilators, we need ICU beds, we need oxygen, and we need healthcare workers. During a pandemic with, with a flu, like we're experiencing now, a certain number of patients will get sick and have to go to the hospital. Some of those a further subset will get even sicker and have to go to ICU and then get incubated and in eventually be on a ventilator. The difference between flu ventilator time period and what this virus is causing is two to threefold. So somebody might be on a ventilator five or six days with the flu. Now we have people that are requiring to be on a ventilator 10, 20, and 30 days to just survive. Um, and that could be all walks of life. That could be all demographics of age, yes. gender. It, it really doesn't matter. Um, some other things we know about viruses are they um, are susceptible to heat. They are susceptible to soap. They are susceptible to um, UV rays. That's why some people believe that when summer comes, uh, some of this may slow down because the spread will slow down. Just like the flu is a seasonal disease, we catch it because in the fall and winter, we're inside, we're in heated areas that are dried out and our lungs have a, a, a thinner layer of moisture on them where a virus can attach itself. That's why when it warms up, becomes more humid, you're less likely to spread the virus. And when it heats up hot enough, then the virus can actually be killed either by the sun or, or by UV rays. Um, other things we know about the virus and viruses in general are they're spread through contact. That's why we want to wash your hands all the time. And they're spread through fomites. Fomites are a door handle, a gasoline pump, a coffee mug, whatever. And based on the virus and its ability to survive, it may survive hours or days on those fomites. So if you touch it, then that's where it gets on your hands. And if you touch your mouth or your face, that's how it gets spread. And, and, and just like the flu, it can be spread very quickly that way when people don't wash their hands and get rid of it, break the chain, so to speak, of it continuing. 
Viruses don't need oxygen. They don't produce any products. They don't have uh, gender. They only reproduce through RNA. So they, when you get them, if you get them in your mouth and it gets into your lungs is where it does its work. It will transpose the, the RNA to DNA in those tissues and cause virus to be replicated that way. Then when you cough, that's why we have a six foot social distance, breathing or coughing those droplets out causes then it to go on surfaces or people breathe it in or you can inhale it and that's how it gets spread also. So it's for something that doesn't seem to be very um, immune to a lot of things, it is rather uh, virulent. Um, we talk about viruses like measles um, and the flu in uh, something called R0, which is a number of how virulent it is. For example, if you have the measles, the R0 value for measles is 12 to 18. So that means one child could go into a room and everybody in the room could get measles. However, the mortality rate is much, much lower than the flu or some other virus. The, the not R0 rate for a seasonal flu might be one to two. So that means one to two, 10 to 20% of a room, like 10 people would get that virus and would be able to spread it. Something like Ebola has an R of three or four. So it's very up to five or six. So you can catch it. The problem is with Ebola is the mortality rate is 40 to 60%. So people, it burns itself out. So you can't spread it as fast. So what we have with COVID-19 is a confluence of a, an R value, R not value that is easily spread, but the mortality rate is not as high as some of the other viruses. For example, SARS in 2002 and three was about 10% mortality rate, those people that got it. MERS, which is another version of the virus that came out in 2012, had a 35% mortality rate. So that's why those, at least the MERS, didn't spread as fast because it burns itself out. Too many hosts die, it can't spread. Yes. Very true. So you, your point is right. And that way, you know, we are here at a little bit benefit because, yes, it's spreading very fast because of the globalization and the amount of travel and the amount of uh, travel of not only humans, but the products and everything that is uh, going on across nations. It gives an opportunity for the virus to travel with that. But at the same time, the kill rate is not that much for, you know, it is to our benefit, but there is a lot that we don't know because it replicates so fast and it uh, moves so fast. So, uh, and because it's airborne and it impacts the lungs, the breathing, you know, problems, that is creating a chaos because we were not prepared to have this many people on ventilators. So perhaps, you know, innovators will have to come up with a personal breathing device that people can use at home and not many people will need to be hospitalized. Perhaps, you know, robotics will advance because we will need uh, the work that the nurses and doctors are doing because at the hospitals, not much is happening except keeping people comfortable. And 
able to breathe. So maybe robots can take over in the coming years, these kind of scenarios that they can just, you know, provide the those kind of services where the humans will not have to be in the front line then. So there are a lot of advances that, you know, the technologies, emerging technologies can help us, you know, cope with these kind of situations. But there is still a lot that we do not know and we need to know. So what do you think we need to know as a country that as United States for us to be able to survive because here every day, you know, we are sort of experimenting, you know, we are getting new data and then we are trying to, you know, come up with a new guidelines. Even CDC is still, you know, playing in the dark. It's still, you know, working with uh, whatever information they are getting every single day. And uh, even the, you know, uh, task force, you know, everybody is trying to gather the data from all countries. And it seems not all countries are, you know, willing to share accurate information. So we we are still struggling to get the data so that we, based on which we can, you know, make our uh, informed decisions. So to what to do and how to prepare our country. And I'm sure the same is the case with other countries who are also uh, going through the similar curb line. So what do we need to know as a country to well, you know, meet this, these uh, complex challenges? So one of the things is, um, you know, the idiom uh, necessity is a mother invention. We, we have all these new uh, vaccine-based trials. You've heard of the, the medicine that we've had some success with that's going through trials. Um, we also have a whole bunch of uh, innovative people trying to come up with different ways to do 3D printing, uh, of not only PPE, protective equipment, but also ventilators. We have other people from the military and other industry leaders coming up with ways to take one ventilator and making it two, um, which doubles the number of ventilators we have, you know, with, with just a device. So that those kinds of innovation, we, we still don't know, um, because we are dependent upon places like China, where they were making most of the ventilators, we're also having 50 different states trying to get ventilators at the same time that FEMA is trying to get ventilators. And the bottom line was we don't have enough bed space or ICU beds or enough ventilators to begin with, much less the taxing of the system. The, the social distancing is, is a good way to push the curve down or flatten the curve, but the curve still exists in places like New York and, and Michigan and, um, and uh, New Orleans are going to experience what the rest of us will earlier than we will. And they will have more people based on density that will probably die because they don't have the equipment or they can't, they can't make uh, enough, um, equipment like ventilators and PPE to keep enough of it in place to, to try to treat all these patients. The other thing we do not know is how long this pandemic is going to last. And, and one of the things that's really critical is I've been reading and, and seeing a lot of stuff about immunity antibodies that are built up into, into your bloodstream. So they want to come up with a test to test healthcare workers to see if they've tested it and 
they have these antibodies so they've passed through the disease and they can continue to work because they're immune to it. However, we don't know how long this is going to last for at least two or three different reasons. One is we don't know if you have immunity, 100% of you, once you have it. Uh, there's some studies that have come out in the last 30 days that suggest that three to 10% of the people that get it can get it again. Yes. So we, we don't know. And that's where a second or third wave of this may or may not happen. The, the second thing we don't know in relationship to the spread is how much the social distancing is going to reduce the requirement for all the logistics that we need. And we also don't know what the impact of the number of healthcare workers that are in the system that are trying to take care of patients, how many of them are going to get sick. We already see some anecdotal stories of doctors that are already dying from, from being treating patients like this, but we don't know the overall uh, impact that that's going to have. We, we do we do know that we brought up some reservists. We do know that we've asked some retirees to come back that are medical, um, military occupational skills for the Army to help with that. And we've also suspended some of the rules about interstate practice and some of the things that, um, including uh, graduating doctors early from residency to just give us more people to do the work because we just don't have the numbers that we need. The, the other things we don't know is exactly how long is it going to take to get a vaccine? There, there's some, like I said, there's some anecdotal stories about medicine, which is treatment, which is another thing that we do know about viruses a flu vaccine that you get every year does treat you for two to three different types of the flu, but that doesn't mean a different type that you may be exposed to doesn't give you the flu anyway. It gives you a very good immunity to flu for the flu season, but not complete. So we don't know how long it's going to take to get a vaccine that goes through even sped up trials that, that we're trying to push through. They're talking about 12 to 18 months. Well, they were talking about 12 to 18 months, 60 days ago. So that, that hasn't changed much. We're still, that's, we're still pushing that down the road. So trying to come up with some of these other innovative techniques, which we don't know whether they're going to work or not about giving people immunity antibodies from plasma from patients who have already gone through the and successfully fought off the virus whether those antibodies will help other patients either one as a prophylactic to prevent the disease or two as a treatment once somebody gets the disease because once again we don't really the, what we're doing now which 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 is one of the just the sobering thoughts about this is you don't really get rid of the disease you treat the symptoms like you said people get to the point where they can't breathe they get pneumonia um and you and some people eventually that's what they die from is the pneumonia because the disease caused their lungs to fill up so treating we're, we're not really treating the disease we're treating all the symptoms that come from the disease and that's what is even more sobering is yes. we, we, we 
and that's what uses up all of our resources as far as logistics. It's very true. And this is very complex because with every disease, not just this uh, COVID-19, but uh, flu and Ebola, you know, disease and uh, HIV, all of those, when we evaluate that virus-based diseases or, you know, bacteria-based diseases, there are some people who even if everybody else in the family, if we talk about some families, everybody else in the family has flu, but that person never gets flu. Or even right now we see, you know, 100 years old recovering from COVID-19 without any issue. But, you know, people in 20s and 30s, they just are dying. So there is, you know, there are a lot of questions about what is it that, you know, drives whether a human but an individual will get the disease and, you know, that individual will succumb to disease. And then but then those brings, you know, bigger questions that uh, it, I was reading reports about, the, you know, emerging from China that uh, they started giving vitamin C as a, you know, uh, thera- preventive uh, and therapeutic doses. Like, you know, people who were actually sick, they started injecting uh, vitamin C them intravenously and they recovered. So that also brings us, you know, other questions that we as a species have we uh, our have our you know vitamins uh, level depleted so much that is that the reason? Because if you look at the human species, we have always since the beginning of our times we have lived in symbiosis with all these bacteria and viruses and fungus in our ecosystem. It has always been there. But why all of a sudden, uh, you know, every few decades, you know, we are hitting with epidemics, pandemics, endemics. What is it that, you know, has our physiology changed? Has our physiology deteriorated? What are the bigger changes happening in our ecosystem? So there are a lot of questions that we will need to evaluate because with each new virus, each, each new disease, each new epidemic or pandemic, we will need a new kind of vaccine or new kind of treatment. How many vaccines? And right now we are dealing with only, you know, natural pandemics. What if, you know, suddenly because of this democratization of research and democratization of innovation and destruction, what if we are hit with, you know, pandemics every year and they are man-made, bioweapons, you know, are involved in that. Then how are we going to every year come up with effective, you know, treatments so that we can save the human species for, you know, any ethnicity or race or, you know, country? How are we going to deal with that? So we will have to evaluate bigger questions of our approach. How do we want to solve these problems? Do we want to go, you know, case by case, like, you know, uh, with each epidemic or each outbreak, do we want to focus on that or do we want to focus on uh, an approach that we can, uh, we don't have to worry about no matter what kind of outbreaks happen, we will be protected. So those are a lot of questions we will need to evaluate in the coming, uh, you know, months and uh, Yes, because this is about the future of humanity. How do we deal with these kind of, you know, scenarios and questions will determine, you know, whether we will be able to protect the future of humanity. But there is a lot that still needs to be done. But for now, based on what you have witnessed, what can we project or predict about the future of our country and all the countries? I can, well, one thing that we've already seen happen is we've had some non-state actors already take advantage of this situation with some cyber threats. Uh, I see that continuing to happen. Uh, we are 
we as a nation in the next 60 to 90 days will be probably at the most vulnerable we've ever been um, period in our, in a, in the lifetime of our nation state, it will be the most vulnerable we've ever been because we will have exhausted um, our economic policy to a certain extent. We will have exhausted our military backup manpower to the medical facilities, uh, any backup uh, capability we have for hospitals or any uh, stockages that FEMA has of supplies. Uh, we will we will go through all that in the next 60 to 90 days. So we will be the most vulnerable we've probably ever been as a nation. And you already see uh, one carrier that, that's taken out of its normal patrols because uh, it has COVID on it and they're taking it into port. That's going to happen more and more at, at bases where you have... Um, people that have COVID-19 and, and it will eventually spread, or it'll be a second or third wave six months from now, nine months from now, or it may happen again. Hopefully we will learn some things between now and then. Um, our business practices are going to have to evolve with supply chain management and supply chains not dependent upon cheap labor. Uh, that's why China uh, and other countries have flourished in the first part of the 21st century is because they are the cheap labor for the rest of the world. You name it, they make it uh, from automobiles to pharmaceuticals to everyday goods. They make it cheaper. And we as a nation have co-opted and leveraged our machining and tool and die and manufacturing processes to those countries. I see that coming back and I see the average U.S. citizen willing to pay more for if they take the tag and look at it and it says U.S. made. I see the American citizen and other citizens of other countries willing to pay more for things made in their own country if they have the capability to do so. Um, because this shock is going to reverberate for the next 80 to 100 years on how we manage what we need. Um, one of those sectors is agriculture. That's a sector that needs desperate help now more than the banks do, because that's our long term ability to feed ourselves, much less have uh, the only positive sector of positive trade balance in the last 40 to 50 years is from the agricultural sector with other nations. Are we self-sufficient uh, in agriculture in our food supply chain? Pretty close. I mean, you have less than 2% of the population that are involved in the production of agriculture. Pre-COVID-19 GDP, we were 15 to 17% of the GDP is involved in agriculture, whether it's implements, fertilizer, uh, manufacturing, uh, elevators, all the different things that deal with food and how to get food to people and process it, all either from hoof to plate or from seed to plate, all the places in between. That's about 15 to 70% of our pre-COVID-19 GDP. Um, that is a sector where you have 
dairy farms dumping out milk now by the hundreds and thousands of pounds. You have uh, other areas that are under severe economic distress that I, in my personal opinion, we should be spending trillions of dollars to keep that afloat than we do others because we are so dependent. If you go back to 1918, 50% of the population was agrarian. Right now it's less than 2%. Well, that has freed up our society to do other things. Uh, the arts, sports, production, manufacturing, business. That's freed up people to go to college. That's freed up people to do other things for our society. And now we are all dependent upon that less than 2% to produce all the food, not only for us, but for the world. We're the breadbasket for 10 or 12 of major commodities that are exported elsewhere. That's why the, the tariffs that the president put in place and some of the trade deals he has put in place are so important because we are an export nation of food. Um, that's something that's going to change. I think that our AI, artificial intelligence, if it's in the neophyte stages of helping us in biology, but you were asking about how we do this in the future. I think the, the, the scientists need to be focused on the disease part and the politicians need to be focused on the policy part. So the policy part being some other version of a Geneva Hague um, law of land warfare, where we hammered out how we were going to acceptably fight each other there's got to be a way how to report numbers, how to benefit the species by making sure all the numbers that are reported by all the countries are valid um, because we don't know anything um, eventually about what's going on until the end. So if we don't have numbers to make decisions about throughout the pandemic, then we're putting more people at risk. Um, I think that some social changes will take place. I don't, I, I don't know about sporting events. I don't know about theaters. Uh, I think more things are going to be um, about bandwidth and streaming, uh, just like we're doing right now. This is going to be commonplace. Uh, and, and, and this is something else that I've been thinking about for decades uh, since I was a uh, former army officer and moved around all over the world, we're going to stop moving. And the reason we're to stop moving is we're not going to want the extra hassle of moving to a new place when we can do it. Tele, we can telework. Uh, we're not, we are a nation of movers. I, I mean, I, when I grew up, you know, we, we visited relatives and then, Two generations later, we see them when we can, but but not nearly as many of them as we did when I was growing up. I, I, I see that coming back because I think people, uh, the connections that people make now personal, once this is over with, are going to be more treasured than they were before. People are going to take more value with that. That's why people are not going to move. Uh, they may move to go get an education, but they're not going to move every three to five years like we've had have happened the last 20 to 30 years in our, in our country's culture. 
Yes, it would be probably good for society because, you know, to have the roots, to have the family ecosystem and all the people that you know around you, it's it's good, you know, you feel more secure because right now, like you said, you know, everybody was moving every three to five years for a job and that created a lot of chaos in their life. You know, you have to restart all over, you know, every few years and that's not a very... Uh, good thing, you know, if you want to develop a good ecosystem, support system around you. And the point about AI that you made, it was, I, I was thinking about all these emerging technologies. I mean, we have made tremendous progress in science and technology. We have IOTs, we have AI, we have biosensors available. So that makes me think that how did we as a country fail in identifying or you know, getting the intelligence in a timely manner of what is what threats are coming our way because with the use of AI, with the use of IoTs, with the use of you know biosensors and tracking systems, we could have very well know known what you know threats are emerging our way, where the outbreaks are happening, and those things were doable. But we, as technology visionaries, we fail to see what problems to solve. We are solving problems, but where to put priority, you know, that, that would put our nation at risk. We did not give that a priority and we failed to, you know, develop that kind of intelligence system which for which all the PCs are already there. So we just had to apply that, you know, we just had to build that uh, system and we failed in doing that. So do you think that we need to... Uh, reset and use this technology more so that we can understand wherever threats are emerging and we can probably stop it in a timely manner. Uh, like I told people where I worked two months ago, it's going to get bad. People didn't believe me. Um, there was no senators, no congressmen in January that stood up and said, hey, this is happening. There's no DIA, no CIA, no intelligence service. They had the data. They just didn't stand up and say, because they knew this, this fact. And the fact is we have a 24 hour news cycle. And if they said something like that, it would get lost in the garble because unless people are getting sick, like what happened with the nursing home, which is another point I wanted to make about moving. I think nursing homes may see a decline in the future because I think because of what's happening in all those uh, critically challenged demographics by the number of people dying, that more people may take up the requirement to take care of their relatives instead of putting them in a nursing home. I think they may change that. Um, but getting back to why we didn't do anything, nobody believes anybody unless something is happening. Um, there's lots of people that do prognostication and predictions of what could happen. We even see that now with the models that are out there. Well, models are based upon data, data that is a best guess in most, in most times. It's not, it's never, accurate until after the pandemic is over with and you can tally up all the numbers and actually see what actually happened. It's only a best guess. Like I've been tracking the John Hopkins GIS dashboard for the last almost 90 days since they put it up and uh, keeping track of the mortality rate for the world and now for the U.S. and for several countries. And based on just that data they have, 
the mortality rates going up um, in all the countries and across the globe. But until you have that data in front of the American public, government officials are not going to be able to do things like this, you know, even the two trillion mail out that we had, it took a whole week to have happen. Those things wouldn't have happened. Uh, isn't that a shame? Because it's not that people, you know, intelligent people were not able to see this coming. If you talk about risk round of discussion, I have been talking about this, uh, you know, for last three years, I would say. There are many episodes where we have covered that, you know, because of the synthetic biology and because of all these advances that we have made, that these threads were emerging. And it was just a matter of time that this, you know, was going to happen. And it, no, if I was able to see that these kind of threats are emerging and we have talked about it, you know, on this kind of discussion, then there were many other people also who have done that. Why we are not taking such, you know, information seriously? Why we are not thinking that let us, you know, protect ourselves. Let's not go through a crisis and then try to solve the crisis. Why are we not protecting us ourselves as a country? We are the most powerful country in the world. We are the most, you know, intelligent and with a country with most resources. So why are we, you know, lagging behind in taking actions in a timely manner? I, I just think that we're human and humans uh, put some credence in education and some credence in specialist and subject matter expertise. But until it hits them in the face like this is, uh, they're not going to listen, but just so far. Um, I wrote a paper eight or nine years ago that just talked about logistics the oxygen, the ICU beds, the ventilators. And about a week ago, somebody contacted me and said, hey, uh, we want to get a copy of your paper because we're writing up, you know, writing a review of the literature that's out there because one of the few people that actually had sat down and done the, the numbers, the science piece of the logistics of how many beds we have, um, because it, it's just not something people do. Um, we learned a lot after 9-11, uh, but 9-11 was not really a, a nation. We acted as a nation state, but the threat was and the impact was only in a few uh, states. Yes. Um, Katrina was more of a regional uh, impact, a natural disaster. Um, Hurricane Sandy in 2012 was more of a, a regional northeast coast, multiple state, but it wasn't the whole country. And because we haven't had something like this for almost 100 years or over 100 years, because the other two other three pandemics uh, killed a lot of people, but didn't didn't spread across the globe like this did, didn't impact e e the economy. And, and you you had asked earlier about why as a species are, are we getting, uh, becoming less strong with immunity? And I, I think it goes back to travel. And you can take this all back to historical records, the Black Plague or all the other pandemics we've had. They were all spread through a means of travel. And because that disease that might be in some jungle somewhere in some village, if it's 
bad enough, everybody in the village gets it and they die and it doesn't go anywhere because this is a less virulent version of a virus that doesn't kill everybody. And now that we have all these modes of travel and there's no, you know, uh, big brother check-in and everybody doesn't have a chip and we're not checking everybody where they're traveling and how they work and who they're in contact with. Then you have people going everywhere. I, I read a story that happened in February that in Albany, Georgia, there was a, there was a uh, funeral and, uh, a common law wife died. They found out that the guy died from COVID-19, but then like 26, including the pastor died that went to the funeral because they were all there. And this was all pre movement, pre stop movement. So, so it was just a tragic confluence of events that happened, but we're going to hear more and more about that. So, how does that impact what we do in the future? Well, what, what it's going to do is one of two things. We're either going to listen to ourselves and say, okay, black swan events like this can happen. So we need to prepare for them. So here are the 30 things we need to do. We just need to spend money on. We need to focus efforts on. We need to, to work on as a country. Or the politicians are going to get involved and say, Oh, that's our one black swan event for a hundred years. So we don't need to worry about it anymore. So now what we need to focus on is X, Y, or Z. So I see that happening. One of those two things happening. Now, maybe a blended version of those two things will happen. Maybe we won't be as partisan in our politics as we have been for the last 10 or 12 years. Maybe we'll come to some coalition building or collaborative thinking on the political side that says, okay, yeah, this is a black swan event, but based on what happened, because everybody doesn't die in that village and that virus goes everywhere in the world in inside 30 days, and then it'll go everywhere else. We need to do some things if we're going to continue to have air travel connections and interconnect modals and nodes of travel across the globe. Um, and then there'll be another blended, the other part of that blended version of policy will be, well, yeah, this was a black swan event. So we're not going to spend as much money as we could or should, because we need to worry about, you know, whatever the flavor of the month is for whatever political uh, gambit that we need to go on that may or may not benefit everybody, but will benefit some uh, lobbyist or lobby group. Yeah, I, I agree. I hear you because that is the way our society operates and that is the way our uh, government operates. So you're absolutely right. But I think it is uh, these kind, this event should teach us a lesson that uh, this is not just about uh, globalization versus protectionism. This is about building resilient systems. Because right now, if, as we are, you know, witnessing this whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, you know, impact and lethality, we are also witnessing the lethality and impact of, you know, having China as a manufacturing nation for everyone. So we are also talking about the dependency, you know, on China. It's a pandemic of dependency on China. So we, all the systems are, you know, almost failing because, you know, the manufacturing, that is a manufacturing hub. So we will need to ask these serious questions. In fact, my first book on the global age 
that was all about this that you know i had started asking questions that time that you know with the way we are doing things with the way we have built systems we need to uh, evaluate whether these are the resilient systems if something happens i mean it looks like you know the book that i wrote about 7 years back that it's so very right on that we are hitting all those you know questions right now and we need to if we want to stay as a country you know self sufficient and secured and uh, not vulnerable to all these threats that are emerging and uh, surrounding us right now we will have to start you know talking about these bigger questions and it seems that you know politics is always going to play you know very important role in all that so how do we how do we educate these politicians how do we create the right sort of uh, mentality in all these politicians so we can come up and we we can all come together and not have this divide between democrats and republicans and we can come together as a country for the, you know the better tomorrow for all of us i think the the 45 well the three weeks of of intense covid-19 but the last 45 days of of stepping up into this three weeks and then the next 6 to 9 months the american populists are going to we're going to deal with some other things that nobody's thought about and that's going to have an impact on how things happen future resources are going to run out and there's going to be civil unrest there're going to be civil disturbances and i don't think anybody really think that is talking about that it, it, i mean it's just like what we what you said before why didn't anybody listen to us well nobody's going to listen to me because well that, that's that'll never happen oh well we we thought that a pandemic of this site would never happen it, it, it the last time it happened was 102 years ago so it we can't have we had civil unrest in ferguson we had civil unrest in in la we had civil unrest. well the problem now is we don't have civil unrest in little places it's all over and we, we don't hear we don't hear about what happened in china but i guarantee you they had civil unrest in china when you locked down 65 million people in hubei province even though they're an autocratic government they had civil unrest of some level yeah. um because resources like groceries pharmacies and hospitals are going to become critical centers of services and goods that we need and depending on where you are especially in urban areas where there's a lot of people dependent upon a corner pharmacy or a hospital or grocery stores that's where we have the ability to have some people get into civil disturbance civil unrest because resources are going to run out they are um and i think that may have that if it happens that will shape our policy post covid-19 more than anything because i think the american public will demand that we have certain things available certain stockpiles here certain uh conduits of commerce ability to the federal government state and local governments to flex capabilities and capacities especially in the medical area that we don't have now um for the last 10 20 years we're closing down hospitals mm -hmm. country county hospitals are closing down 
Hospitals are no longer having 24 hour surgical services. We've been doing that for the last 10 to 20 years because they don't have enough patients. They can't pay for it. The capacity goes away because they get shut down or they curtail services. I think the American people, if we get to the point where we have civil unrest at some level, will demand that politicians come together and say, we need certain things to happen. We, we need to have some capabilities. We need to have some capacities. The federal government needs to be involved. The state and local government needs to be involved. Um, tribal government needs to be involved because if we don't, um, you're right, the politicians at the federal level and at the state level in some respects will pander to whatever lobby group they are at the, at the point in time that gets them reelected. Uh, I mean, I could see term limits come out of this. I, I could really see that coming out as a positive impact coming out of this when you have people that have been serving the country 30 and 40 years in Congress um, making lots of money and generating lots of wealth and they were fighting over how much money we're going to give the American citizen. I mean, well, why didn't we just uh, suspend payments of mortgages, car loans, credit cards, and, and student loans for four months? Why didn't we just do that? That would help out American citizens more than a $1,200 check. Yes. I, I don't understand why, because, and the reason why is because the lobby of the banks is so large, they had to be taken care of because um, we're spending trillions there that we did in 2008 to save all them because they were too big to fail. Well, it goes back to what you were talking about with China being the number one manufacturing hub. Well, globalization was we would never fight them on a military terms because we are so tied to them in trade. Well, mm -hmm. that, we figured that out. That's a flaw. We are dependent upon them for certain things that we shouldn't be dependent upon them for, that we should have in America. We should have a different way to make vaccine than using eggs. <laughs> I mean, because in some respect, we're still using eggs to make vaccine for flu. We should be, all that should be AI. All that should be um technologically improved to a second or third order magnitude where where we could do that. But that won't happen if the politicians say this black swan event happened, it won't happen again. So why do we need to spend all this money on research and education and technology? Um, but I do think the American public has a significant role in what happens I mean, I, I don't know why we're not talking. It, it goes back to what I've talked about before with some of my peers. We were two weeks behind in the decision cycle. Now we're four weeks behind in the decision cycle. We need to get ahead of the decision cycle. So why aren't we talking about, we have a national election, how are we going to do it? Why aren't we talking about that now? Yes, very true. And I, why are we talking about, you, you know, there's, why are we worried about sporting events? And uh, so I, and I'm not taking anything away from that, but we should be worried about the continuation of operations of the U.S. government and all the sovereign states and territories. That That's what we should be worried about. 
and how we do that. Well, elections is a big part of that. We should be worried about and we should figure out how the House of Representatives does a vote without being physically there. Yes, yes. All that is not happening, those discussions, because, uh, you know, yes, thought leaders like, you know, me and we, organizations like Risk Group, they are all actively working on it. But look at our media. Their focus is entirely different and they are, you know, brainwashing people in becoming more and more ignorant and becoming more and more focused on irrelevant things every single day, 24-7. So that is, uh, we will have to change that. Yes, there are a lot of podcasters, there are a lot of thought leaders and visionaries that are trying to change all that. But it's a slow process. It's going to take time before, you know, people will walk away from, you know, watching these, uh, you know, CNNs and all those, you know, channels, MSNBCs and Foxes and all that, that are all driving their propaganda. It is no longer accurate news. So that is a real shame that, you know, we cannot, you know, discuss anything intelligently. We cannot prepare our citizens, our country for, you know, better tomorrow. We are just so focused on, you know, our partisan, you know, propaganda and agenda. So all that has to change. And I hope that what you are saying, those changes will happen and the citizens are able to demand that because I think it is time. Everyone needs to demand certain, you know, constructive changes for our better tomorrow, for our security. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners? I hope that uh, this is a time for pause and people are going to be in their homes thinking about things, reading, studying, making themselves better to provide input to the decision makers in the next six to nine to 12 months. Uh, And hopefully, hopefully those decision makers at whatever level will listen (laughs) because we've had people focused uh, on their families, focused on their work at home, not in a, a cube or an office somewhere, but at home focused on these problems. And hopefully they'll come out with recommendations on what we need to do in the future. Uh, you know, uh, other pandemics and other issues have brought uh, leaps in thought and logic in the past. Hopefully that will happen again with with this pandemic, we can, some people will come up with some innovation. Uh, some people will come up with some ways, some better ways of doing things. And hopefully the decision makers will, will listen to them. Yes, let us all hope that because that is the need of the time. So thank you so much, Professor Cup, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on the pandemics and what we as a country, where we are in our current state and, you know, future impact and where we need to focus on. And I'm sure our global viewers, I would I'm sure that the global viewers and listeners would also benefit because they can also translate this knowledge into their country's struggles and they can, you know, uh, benefit from the information you provided today. And as a result, this Riskant dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thanks. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community and our strategic security community and ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report 
strategic security risks to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups. And until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Grant, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.